Hello and welcome. You're listening to Outstanding in Their Field, an agriculture literacy discussion. This podcast is hosted by me, Will Fett, from the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, and by Katie Carpenter of New York Agriculture in the Classroom. Throughout this season, we'll be joined by friends of Agriculture in the Classroom from across the country as we explore how agriculture meets some of our most basic needs of food, fiber, and fuel. We'll hear from educators who are creatively teaching and inspiring their students in food and agriculture. And we'll hear from industry experts showing the technology and science of modern agriculture and food production. Hello and welcome. My name is Will Fett, and I'll be your host for this episode of Outstanding in Their Field. With us today is Kent Moosefeld from Coon Rapids, Iowa. Kent, how are you doing today? I'm doing real good. Appreciate you joining us. Just to kind of kick us off, give us a little bit of your background and your role in agriculture. We got a lot of irons in the fire here. I work as a feedlot nutritionist or beef nutritionist, do a lot of cow-calf diets and then beef feedlot diets, work with a lot of different feed ingredients, byproducts from the ethanol industry and anything that's grown in Iowa, like soybean meal products, soy hull pellets, things like this. Cover basically kind of the western half of Iowa, western third maybe. Me and my son also operate a registered Angus operation. So feedlot sounds important, but how does that kind of fit into the family business? You mentioned uh, cattle herd then? Yeah, yeah, we sell breeding stock, bulls to, you know, commercial people that are needing bulls to breed their cow herds. Give us a little bit more background and a sense of the family operation. How did you get into this? Has this been in your family? What's kind of the history there? Yeah, I'm second generation Angus breeder. My dad bought his first registered Angus cattle in 1954. So the American Angus Association gives out a historic Angus herd award to herds that have been in continuous production for 50 years or more. So we received that about six years ago. Uh, My son be the third generation. And uh, so we hope to keep it going. Fantastic. So it sounds like agriculture has been in your family, but why agriculture? Why why do you do what you do on a day-to-day basis? I guess I don't know any different because I grew up in it, <laughs> but I enjoy the Angus thing immensely. It's just a true passion that we have to provide genetics to help people become more profitable. And on the feed side as well, I mean, I, I guess I get enjoyment out of making sure we do proper nutrition and balanced diets to get the most gain from an economic standpoint. It's just very rewarding to you know help people become more profitable and keep them in business. So I like what you said there, and you kind of hit on a couple of different things. First off, you're trying to help people improve their herd of cattle through genetics, which I think is incredibly important and obviously breeding good traits into them. But then you also mentioned the feed aspect and proper nutrition and diet. And that's what I kind of like to key in on for our conversation. How does nutrition really affect the quality of the animal's health and the ultimate end product for the consumer? That's of the utmost importance. I mean, if you don't provide proper nutrition, those cattle will not express their true genetic potential. So if we provide, you know, a properly balanced diet with the proper protein and energy levels and vitamins and trace minerals, why then they will express those genetics, whether you're looking at performance and gain and feed efficiency or whether you're looking at meat quality in terms of how they grade. You know, if animal health is in order and the nutrition is in order, then they will have a higher quality grade, grade choice better, which will in turn uh, provide a more satisfaction product to the consumer. 
some of our listeners might be very familiar with how meat is graded, but uh, for those who aren't, can you just give us a sense of what does it mean to have different grades of meat and how would nutrition affect those? At the pack and plant, there are USDA graders that are in line in the pack and plant, and they look at the amount of marbling that is deposited in the muscle of the animal. This is the little white specks that is marbling, and that provides more taste and eating satisfaction. And so there's prime, choice, and select. There's a lot of branded programs out there that, like certified Angus beef, they want the prime and the upper two-thirds of choice. So there's high choice, mid-choice, and low choice. So the low choice would not qualify for that program. So basically, marbling is that intermuscular fat deposited, like you said, those little white specks that, and correct me if I'm wrong, ultimately lead to a more tender cut of meat as well as a more flavorful cut of meat, correct? Exactly. That's exactly right. So prime being the best, that's what top chefs are going to want to serve and even the top home cooks might want to serve to their family. But all cuts of meat are going to be good, healthy options to put on the table. You do get into that fine line differentiation between those cuts when you start talking about grading and having very high quality cuts of meat like prime. And they all got their place. I mean, I sit on the executive board for the Iowa Beef Industry Council. A year ago right now, I did take a trip to South Korea and Taiwan and really got to see the meat industry in those countries. They use a lot of cuts that we don't use here. So example, tongue being one, you know, if we didn't have those export markets, the value of our carcass would be about $300 less. But they also do want high marbling cuts of meat as well. So the exports are on the rise because of higher marbling cattle. When we were over there, we even were served uh, intestines. They make a lot of different cuts usable. And we might have had that for lunch one day, but yet that night we might have ate at a really fancy steakhouse and had one of the best ribeyes I've ever had as well. So that's one of the things that the beef checkoff dollars do is research how we can make these other products usable. And that's something interesting to think about. You know, we raise a lot of livestock here in Iowa. We raise a lot of beef, but the population of Iowa probably couldn't eat all of the beef that we produce. So we're shipping those animals and those carcasses to population densities like the East Coast or the West Coast or even internationally to have a, a market for people to eat those beef products, correct? Correct. Yeah. That's so interesting. And you mentioned how the quality nutrition leads to better expression of genes that leads to better cuts of meat. What does a cow eat? Give us an idea of what does their feed ration look like? You know, they have four stomachs. The fact that they have a rumen is the one that really makes them so they can digest a lot of fiber. And as far as a cow, their main ingredient that they consume is grass. And, you know, that's just a natural resource available that otherwise we wouldn't be able to utilize if we didn't have cows that convert this grass to a high quality protein for human consumption. With that rumen, we can provide uh, ingredients that otherwise are kind of garbage that wouldn't be usable. For example, corn stalks, what's left from producing corn. These corn stalks are corn stover, as it's also called. You know, it's about 5% protein. It does have an energy value. You know, from the ethanol industry, we, we can add distiller's grains that's left over, just a byproduct of that process. And that's a highly digestible fiber that's really high in protein and really high in energy. So we can include that with these corn stalks and make a balanced diet. We'd also like to maybe include a little bit of hay in there. In the feedlot sector, we'd like to include a little soybean meal because soybean meal does have the best balance of amino acids. Proteins are made up of amino acids and there's like 20 of them. 
There's 10 of them that are essential. So we like to include that a little bit in the balancer. And the balancer is simply something that will balance that diet out. You need to bring in something that's high in calcium and something that's higher in thiamine to offset the higher sulfur that these other otherwise unusable feeds bring into the diet. So we balance it out with this balancer. That's really interesting. I think a lot of times we think of a cow's diet as being pretty monotonous, either only grass or only corn, but it sounds like there's a lot of variety in the diet. How do you go about deciding what that mix of grass, hay, corn, soybeans, and other ingredients, how do you go about deciding what a cow eats? A lot of that is decided by the season because when we have grass from, say, May through September, when grass is growing, that's that's going to be the cow's main diet then. There are some people that may not have adequate pasture that are in a more of a feedlot setting that will bring in the, the corn stalks and silage maybe or what have you. But typically grass time from May through September. And then after that, after the grass season is done, that's when we'll have to provide this other diet that I mentioned. The feed ration that you mix is kind of supplementary or off-season mix. Is that right? Yeah, it can be supplementary or it can be just off-season. Like this time of year means there's no grass out there growing. I mean, this time of year, there'll be a lot of hay fed, but hay is expensive and tight supply. So then a lot of people might bring in corn stalks and ethanol and maybe bring in a little hay and some corn silage as well. And it varies from producer to producer and what might be in their neighborhood to buy. Sure. And you mentioned the uh, four compartments of the stomach. The cow has a rumen that has all this good bacteria that helps break down plant matter from the grass and get nutrients from the grass. Let's dive in a little bit more into the soybean meal and the other ingredients of your supplemental feed rations. What specifically do those ingredients bring to a balanced diet or a balanced ration? In regards to bean meal, it mainly be protein. And like I alluded to before, the amino acids in soybean meal are superior to other sources of protein. The distiller grains that come from the ethanol industry that are left over in that process, yeah, they are high in protein. They're on a dry matter basis. They're about 30, 32% protein, but they are somewhat deficient in lysine, which is one of those amino acids. It's nice to bring in a little bit of bean meal to bring that lysine level back up. And when we're talking amino acids, when we're talking about protein and connect it back to the animal's health, we're talking about building tissue, skin, hair, bones. We're talking about building muscle mass, which then leads to higher grades of cuts of meat, correct? Correct. I mean, a higher cutability, I mean, they'll just yield a, a heavier, more well-muscled carcass, which is what we're after. So really as a producer, as a farmer and as a feed mill manager, you have to look at the entire spectrum of what the consumer gets on their plate all the way back to the genetics that starts off the cow's life. And you kind of have to figure out how to connect all of those dots through good nutrition and, and care, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like the animals that we don't sell as breeding stock, we actually do finish them out up to harvest weights and sell those, you know, as quarters and halves or whole beef to people for, you know, as freezer beef. And it's very rewarding when we have people tell us, man, that is the best meat I've ever had, you know, so. It's great to have those quality testimonials at the at the yeah. end of the day. That probably makes you feel pretty good. Yeah. You gave us a brief snippet of what you do, but can you elaborate a little bit more on what your current role responsibilities are and um, maybe what a typical day looks like for you? Well, typical day starts off early. <laughs> it's, uh, this morning, it probably started at four and uh, sitting here in the office for probably two. Well, today, it wasn't quite two hours, but getting caught up on diets that I got to provide to people. I find out what feedstuffs they got to work with. 
and maybe how they want to budget that. Because if they say they put up a lot of corn silage, but uh, and then one guy maybe didn't put up as much and he can't feed it as heavy as another guy. So I need to find out how they want to budget the feedstuffs that they got to work with. And then I'll put a balanced diet together. A feedlot diet might consist of a starter diet for when the calves are younger after they've been weaned at, say, 400 to 600 pounds. And then we'll go into a couple of grower diets that might be fed for 30 to 40 days each. And then we'll start getting into about three finishing diets. And then along with those diets, I might provide a financial projection. I can kind of tell them the cost of production and cost per pound of gain and what their break even will be so that they can do the marketing side a little bit and lock them in if they need to. Another thing that I provide for them is batch sheets. So these batch sheets are simply when they load the feed wagon, say, for example, it'll tell them if they're going to load a 3,000 pound batch, it'll tell them how many pounds of each ingredient that's going into that wagon. And I can put it in the loading order that they desire. If they fed a 3,000 pound batch today, tomorrow, they read the bunks, they can see the cattle clean this up relatively fast, and they want to increase to a 31 or a 3,200 pound batch, then they just look at this sheet and they look at the 3,200 pound line and they can see exactly what they need to put in. So they don't have to guess or figure this stuff themselves. So that's one of the really nice things that they use to be a better feeder because we can avoid some acidosis issues if we were guessing wrong and putting the wrong stuff in the feed wagon. So we do a better job of providing that balanced diet by having these batch sheets. So your feed rations are all based on proportions and you're weighing everything out and these animals are eating a lot of food. So we're talking pretty big numbers as far as how many pounds of feed for animals. It sounds like there's a a fair bit of math that goes into your day-to-day job as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Math is a good skill to have. Make sure you do your math homework. So. I want to jump back to something else you mentioned earlier. You were talking about how the cattle would have different diets throughout their life. And as I think about it, that makes complete sense that you need different nutrition and different things throughout our life as humans. So it makes sense for cattle. Can you tell us a little bit more? You mentioned a couple of different phases, but what do those diets, how are they different? Mainly in energy. You know, the protein levels are going to be fairly constant throughout. We're starting out with a lower energy and more fiber because we need to continue to grow that animal's frame and not letting it get too fat too fast in its life. I'll refer to the net energy for gain. We refer to it as NEG, and that stands for net energy for gain. A grower one diet, for example, might be a 48 to a 50 NEG. And then as we go into grower two, the next grower diet, it might be a 54, for example. And then as we get into the first finisher, it might be an NEG of 57 and then a 60, and then a 62. I mean, you can vary these a little bit. It depends if you're a backgrounder or if you finish your calves out all the way to harvest. You know, the backgrounders, they basically grow these calves up to maybe, oh, various ways, but maybe 800 pounds, for example. Might be 700 to 900 pounds, but let's say 800 pounds. The feedlot that buys them that will finish, they want to buy a framey animal that's not been too fleshy because they can put on that gain cheaper themselves than if they were buying it. So a backgrounder's grower might not be as high in energy as a grower diet of someone that is raising their own calves and feeding them all the way out to harvest. So you're using a lot of cattle industry terms. Tell us what a backgrounder is. Backgrounder, typically he might buy, uh, say, 500-pound calves and put them in his feedlot and feed a high-fiber diet. He might have access to a lot of hay or a lot of corn silage, and he might put distillers with it and put together a very economic, or try to put together an economical diet to have some 
lower cost of gain in these calves and take them up to 800 pounds, for example. So he's just backgrounding them so that somebody else can buy them and then the other buyer will then finish them out. Okay, so I might oversimplify this, so correct me if I'm wrong. You kind of have three buckets or different types of producers. You have breeders who are going to calve and produce the baby animals. And once those animals are weaned, they go to a backgrounder. Backgrounder is going to raise the animals up, and then they sell them again to a feedlot or finisher that's going to get them ready for market weight. Correct. And in Iowa, I mean, I had a lot of people that calve them out and finish them all the way out. But yeah, out west, where you have a lot of larger herds out west, typically you have the cow-calf herds that will raise the calves and then sell them after weaning. They might background them for 40 days or something. And then a backgrounder might buy them and then they might trade hands again to the finisher. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah. So you might have somebody who does it all, but then if you have somebody who specializes, give us a sense of why would you specialize in just one segment of that process? Like a large feedlot, for example, they don't have the time or they might not have the pasture land resources available to own the cow and produce them calves themselves. So they just want to concentrate on finishing those cattle out, for example. So there might be some time and economic restraints, but in my mind, it also makes them experts at that slice of the puzzle. Is that accurate? Absolutely. Yeah. They are able to focus in, dial in more intently on providing the right environment, the right vaccination program and nutrition program and what have you. I mean, smaller people that do it from the cow to finish can too, but you can just focus in on it more on if you're just doing certain segments of the industry. We have talked now a little bit about how you're feeding cattle. We talked a little bit about the mixing of the different ingredients. I'm curious then sourcing, where do you get soybean and soybean meal? And where are you getting your corn ingredients and some of your other additives? Oh, there's a lot of different places to get them uh, from your processors or from your local elevator or cooperative. You can source soybean meal through, you know, through different avenues that way. The meal is the most valuable product of soybean. They process these soybeans and make this meal that's about 48% protein. And it's used in every species of livestock. The texture of ground flour-ish? Yeah, a little coarser, but kind of like that. And then uh, there's other products left over from this processing process, which would be the hulls that are on the outside of the soybean. So that's still usable too. It don't have the protein level of the meal, but it's still a highly digestible fiber source. It kind of begs the question then, why are we going through the effort of processing the soybeans into meal and hull and and other byproducts? Why not just feed whole soybeans? It would be too much fat, be explosive in the gut. I remember when I started in this business nearly 30 years ago, I did have a farmer or two that were feeding raw soybeans. You can, but it's you're limited pretty fast on how much you can put in the animal's diet. Like in beef cattle, you might get away with one to two pounds per head per day, but that's it. Otherwise, you're going to be providing too much fat. They tend to expand. That soybean will expand and cause potential bloat. So it comes back to this idea of being very precise and trying to provide the best feed ration with the exact right ingredients, correct? Yep. Yep. Perfect. What is the best part of your job? Oh, gosh. I enjoy it all. <laughs> it's a, well, not all. Not on, the, not on days when it's a blizzard in your cabin. But, you know, just providing for other people, whether that be the service that I do on the nutrition side and making those animals gain better for them, helping them 
in their production process on our Angus side is, you know, when we've got a heifer there, we'll decide what bull we're going to breed her to, and we use artificial insemination. We also use embryo transplant. We look at the strengths of that animal and maybe look at her weaknesses and use a bull that will correct those weaknesses and what have you. We get so much enjoyment out of that, making the next generation better, and then landing those in the hands of the people that are going to use them as breeding stock. There's nearly nothing more enjoyable. Well, Kent, thanks so much for uh, chatting with us today. Really great to learn from you and understand a little bit more about the beef industry, the feed rations that care for those animals and provide good nutrition, knowing that we're kind of always keeping our eye on that end prize of the cut of meat that's on the consumer's plate. So thanks for uh, doing this. Thanks for being here. Well, you betcha. Thank you. I am with an incredible educator from Des Moines Christian School, and she is our 2020 Excellence in Teaching About Agriculture winner. Rhonda Osborne, how are you today? I'm doing great, Will. Thank you for letting me join you today. It's our pleasure, and we really want to learn a little bit from you about all of the great things that you have going on in your classroom, but maybe just start us off. What is your educational background and your professional training? So I went to the University in Northern Iowa for a year and a half, and I was determined to pay my own way through college. So I dropped out for a semester and then finished up at Northwest Missouri State University. I got my degree in three and a half years, which I would not recommend. It's pretty hard to do that with lots of heavy class loads. And then after I graduated, uh, my husband and I were married and we had kids. I worked at a Head Start preschool and then I stayed home and actually homeschooled my children. And then when I decided I wanted to go back into teaching and the kids were ready, they started school and I was a substitute teacher for probably seven years. And then in the 2005-2006 school year, I joined Des Moines Christian School. I have been teaching fourth grade ever since then and I absolutely love it. That's excellent. So you mentioned you teach fourth grade. Can you give us an idea? What does your current role and your responsibilities look like? And maybe what does a typical day look like for you? Great question, Will. We have 75 students in the fourth grade. There are three sections. I teach reading and Bible to all three sections. So the students come to their homeroom, and then I start off by teaching reading right away. And then we go to our specials, art, music, and PE. And then we switch. So the next teacher teaches them right now because of COVID. The teacher comes to the classroom, and then I leave and go to the different classroom. And we do that throughout the day. And then at the end of the day, we go back to our homeroom classrooms. There are times throughout the day where we're back in our classroom, obviously, for like 20, 30 minutes. Typically, I have 70 minutes to teach reading and Bible to all teach section of fourth graders. So you teach reading and Bible. There is not a logical connection between reading and Bible and agriculture. How in the world do you incorporate agriculture into your classroom? It is so much simpler than what 
you would think it was. I'm going to back up for just a minute and tell you why I started teaching agriculture. So there was a day several years ago, I made a comment to my class that as I was driving in to school, I mentioned that I was super excited to see the farmers out in the field, and I wasn't sure if they were planting corn or soybeans. And one of my students said, oh, I'm so excited. I can't wait to eat all that sweet corn. And I made the comment, you know that that corn's not sweet corn. And the student kind of argued with me a little bit saying, yeah, that's what Iowa grows is sweet corn. So I asked the class, how many of you in here think the farmers out in the field are growing all sweet corn? And more than half of my class raised their hand. And it was then that I decided that my kids needed to learn agriculture. And so teaching Bible and reading, I was kind of like you, Will, it's like, how do you do that? But because of the Iowa Agricultural Literacy Foundation and all their resources, it was easy for me to incorporate it in reading. And then with Bible, the Bible is so much parables on seeds and so much of taking care of the earth that God has given us that it actually flows really naturally for me now. I would guess I would imagine that putting reading a nonfiction text or even a fiction text into some context helps students really digest that information and understand it better, correct? That is correct. And if you look at the Iowa assessment scores, one of the areas that the fourth graders throughout the state is low in is that informational text. They're just not getting enough of that in the classroom. So being able to bring in agriculture and teach them about that and improve their test scores is a great way to teach it. Let's jump back to how do you incorporate agriculture into your classroom? It's been a long time since some of us have been in school. What does a reading lesson look like? Those educational standards that you're striving for, it's not just students reading books, it's understanding and understanding sentence flow and structure and things like that. Help us get a visual of what a reading lesson could look like as it's applied in agriculture. So I will be starting my beef unit in a couple weeks. And the first thing that I start off with is I give the kids a piece of paper and they write down five things that they know about cows. And I pulled some from last year. And this is the reason why I teach agriculture. They make milk, they moo, they are big, they live on a farm, they are black and white. Um, Another student wrote, they make beef, they are mammals, they eat grass, they are vertebrate. So you look at those in fourth grade is nine and 10 year olds, that's very basic information and it's not completely accurate either. Um, So what I do is I take that information And then depending on the year, I can differentiate that to each classroom. The next thing that I would have them do is I take the Agriculture Today publications that um, your foundation puts out and the students read it for 10 minutes and they don't have to complete 
any one article because there are several articles within that, but they can pick and choose which articles they want. They read for 10 minutes and then they would choose an activity. And the activities could be write five facts. It could be write down all the vocabulary words and definitions that were highlighted in your article. Maybe they're going to compare and contrast the plants and animals. They could draw a picture or a diagram of the crops and livestock raised in Iowa. So once they have done that, then we go through and we share our ideas. And then we read another 10 minutes, and then they can choose a different activity. So we would continue through that until they had read the entire Agriculture Today article. And then they have so many choices of which activities they want to do that it's really fun to pull those all together and share them as a class. That is so cool to think about how it's applied. And you're not asking students to read Shakespeare or War and Peace, but you're asking to them to read something that's relevant to them, articles that they're interested in. Do you see a higher student interest or student engagement with this kind of assignment? Absolutely, because the students love the Ag Todays. They're bright, they're colorful, they're interesting, and they can go through and pick which articles they want. The interesting thing, Will, and it makes me laugh every single time I use these, is I always have parents, after we have studied the Ag Today, they will email me and ask, when's the next one coming out? Because I learned so much from that. And it makes me laugh because there's so much good information in there. And even if you lived in Iowa for a long time, you're still learning information from that. And I think for the students, it's cool for them to know that they're learning and their parents are learning the same thing. That is so cool. And your point is very well made that we all need to be lifelong learners. And you also bring up another interesting piece about the type of reading material that we're consuming. It doesn't have to be a book. An informational brochure or a publication like that can be very, very valuable. And those are largely the types of reading materials that we'll have throughout our life. It sounds like you're really preparing your students for real world reading. Absolutely. Students get tired of reading the same old thing all the time. I will say that I do use a lot of the My Family Farm books that you guys have. Those are short books. I just want to put a big plug in for the Ag Today because I hand those out and when we're done, the kids will say, do you need these back? And I'll be like, no, you get to keep them. And so many of my kids think that's the coolest thing. And they're like, we get to keep these? And I'm like, yep, you can take them home. And the majority do take them home. And my girls, a lot of times, will use them to play teacher at home with them. But I know that several of them keep them and look through them. You know, when harvest season does come around or planting season, and they can take the information in those articles and review those and apply them. I also like the fact that there's always a highlight of the careers in Iowa. And I think that's so important for students to know that so many of them will go into a career somehow related to agriculture. 
and probably not a farmer. Some of them might, but uh, most of the career opportunities are not in production agriculture, but all of those supporting industries around production agriculture. You mentioned that you were just starting your beef unit, and one of the pieces of that that I know you've participated in in the past, and I just saw that you signed up for again, is the High Stakes Beef Marketing Contest. Walk us through what your beef unit looks like and how you integrate that contest into it. With the beef unit, we start with the very, very basics because that's kind of where my students are. So we talk about the difference between beef and dairy cattle. And then what's the difference between a bull and a steer, a heifer, cow, cattle. And those are like the basic foundations that we start with. And then we talk about the beef byproducts, that's one of the things that I kind of highlight within the unit. And I'm super excited because this year I am incorporating something that I am calling Ag in Action, where we're going to study the beef byproducts. And then students can bring in beef byproducts, and then we are going to donate those to Ronald McDonald House or homeless shelters or inner city schools, which I think it will be super fun for the kids to know that. Studying beef byproducts has a purpose, and we can take those byproducts and be a blessing to other people and give back in the community because that's what farmers do. That is so cool. What kind of beef byproducts are you hoping to collect with the students? Absolutely. So basic ones that they will come up with first will be the chewing gum, jelly beans, fruit snacks, any of the gummy candy like the gummy worms, the gummy bears. But also there are so many more things, toothpaste, combs, shampoos, all of that stuff will be beneficial to like the Ronald McDonald houses. You have the baseballs and soccer balls, all of that stuff that's made out of leather. That's great. And as part of the contest too, you also have to connect it with nutrition. So then how do you introduce beef as part of the human diet and talk about the nutrition that students would get from it? So when we study the nutrition facts, we use our Chromebooks to look up that information. So I have the students actually list out their favorite beef product. So for some, it might be walking tacos. Some might have a hamburger. A few will say a big, fat, juicy steak. And then they look up the nutrition value for that. And they look up the serving size, which is really important because Sometimes students will think they have to have a huge amount of meat to meet that serving size, and that's just not true. So they do a lot of research on that. And then we explore a little bit of some beef products that maybe they wouldn't necessarily choose to eat, but still look at those um, nutrition value. One of the things that I'm guessing that you kind of make the connection or help your students make the connection is that in order to have a healthy steak at the end, you have to have a healthy animal and feed them a healthy diet, including that corn and soybeans that you were mentioning early on. Do you feel like your students walk away with a good sense of the whole process then? I feel they do. One of the things that I bring in to keep it 
more alive and more interesting is I will go to a farm and maybe I will just stand next to one of the big round bales and we talk about the weight of that and how long it can feed cattle and what the cost of that is. This year I also was able to interview a cattle farmer and so that'll be fun for the kids. John and I were out right next to the cattle. So we had the cattle next to us and we fed them some silage. And then we'll talk about the benefits of that in versus hay. Is it better for the farmer to grow their own hay or to buy it and the cost effectiveness of all of that? So there's a lot of math that goes into that. And even though I teach just reading and Bible, we can do some of that interdisciplinary teaching. So great that you can reinforce those concepts that your other teaching staff is trying to hit home as well. Can you give us maybe a little story or an anecdote of the growth and change that you see in your students, either from the start of a unit to the end of the unit, or maybe the start of the school year to the end of the school year? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I should say this or not, but I feel like they are city slickers when I start my ag unit. And then at the end, they know a little bit and they have that hunger to learn more about agriculture. And so then they can take that hunger and do some of their own research. Or when they go into fifth grade, they do some units on corn so they can continue to learn on that. I do teach one ag unit a quarter right now, but My hope is to continue with those four main ones, which is corn, soybean, cattle, and turkeys. And then I want to bring in some of the pork education. I want to bring in some lavender and kind of rotate through some more of that. So the learning curve just in the agriculture part is they come in thinking, all cattle is called cows in that they're all black and white and they all produce hamburger. After we study it, they know those different terms and they know that there's beef cattle and there's dairy cattle and they know how to take care of it. They know how important it is that the farmer does do a good job of taking care of it. And academically then on their scores, just because they have been exposed more to that informational text, those scores also go up because they can learn that nonfiction is fun to learn about and it just creates a passion for agriculture in them. You make an excellent point then how we can see the growth and change in students as they go throughout their educational journey. But when you're able to point to specific increases of scores, you maybe do this little happy dance and yes, it was successful, right? I do. And I think that agriculture is just so fun to teach and the kids respond well to it and they really enjoy learning about it. Sometimes they ask me questions that I don't know the answer to. And so together we can learn, which I think models that lifelong learning that everyone has to do. And when they get excited about it, it's just super fun to teach. Very cool. So you walked us through your beef unit. Can you give us one more example and tell us a little bit about your soy unit? 
Sure. So my soybean unit was new this year, and one of the things that I loved about my soybean unit was using the resources that the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation had. That was kind of my starting point. And my kids loved the soybean activity, which they had to, it's called Soybean Source, and they have the life cycle of the soybean, and they had to put it in order. And they started off, that was my first day where I just gave them the cards and had to put them in order. And of course they were all wrong. And so then we studied and then they were able to put them in order. So then we had to have a timed relay race to see who could do it the fastest. And they were learning and they were having fun. I grew up, my first job was walking beans. So I was able to have a personal connection with the kids and share that story with them. We played soybean bingo, which was super fun to do. So at the end of our unit, um, instead of a test, we played bingo and I asked them the questions over the information that they were supposed to have learned during the unit. And then if they knew the answer, of course, they could mark their bingo card. So that was super fun. It sounds like you really bring a lot of fun and uh, positive emotion into your classroom. I have a little bit of a sense of your background, but why is agriculture important? And why do you choose to take that extra effort and integrate it into your classroom? If I could say it very simply, it would be because it is so much fun. They don't get a lot of agriculture in school, and I believe, Will, that is because teachers shy away from it. They feel like they don't have the knowledge that they need to teach it, but you just have to dive into it and use the resources available and learn along with the kids. They live in Iowa. They should know that not all cattle are black and white in that there is a difference of cattle and they should know the difference of sweet corn and field corn and they should know what soybean looks like. I spend quite a bit of time within each of my units teaching about farm machinery and just basic The kids should be able to see a combine in the field and know it's a combine and know what that purpose is. So I just really believe living in Iowa, we are an ag state. They should know the basics of all forms of agriculture. And you made a great point earlier how because we live in Iowa, there's this assumption that we know, but your students are from the Des Moines metro area, Urbandale and surrounding communities, which means that they're urban students. They don't have that farming background and don't experience agriculture in any other way, correct? That is very correct. You know, I grew up with lots of family involved in farms from dairy farms, hog farms. My dad worked at a feed research farm. So for me to teach it, it's just kind of natural because I grew up with that and I just knew about it. So driving a tractor, getting up at two o'clock in the morning because the cows got out, that is something that the urban kids don't experience. Sounds like there's a lot of positives from your job, but what is the best part of your job? 
Wow, I love to teach, Will. Every day when I come into my classroom, I open that door and it's like this giant present because I don't know what's going to happen in the day, but it's going to be fun and it's going to be exciting and it's going to be something that I enjoy and something that the kids enjoy. And I think that... That gift comes from the Lord. I'm a very strong Christian, and I just think that teaching is a present, and you never know what it's going to be. I love that analogy, and your enthusiasm is is contagious. I've never heard a classroom being described as a present, but I can see that. Rhonda, thanks again for doing this. Really enjoyed talking to you. It's been great, Will. Be sure to follow our podcast on Instagram at Outstanding in Their Field Podcast, our website, and our Facebook page. For more information on the Iowa Agriculture Literacy Foundation, visit iowaagliteracy.org. Remember, too, to subscribe to Outstanding in Their Field on your favorite podcast streaming service and learn more in the show notes. For now, thanks for listening and stay tuned for next time when we hear from more folks who are outstanding in their field. Outstanding in their field.